as I, when I graduated from here, I actually thought uh, that I needed to reread everything I'd read before I'd come here because I, I didn't remember, I couldn't tell what I really gained from any of them. And in finishing this paper, I felt like I needed to see all the movies over again that I've ever seen in my life to see if, if I'm right. Um, so I, I guess I, uh, together with that, I want to give this one apology. I haven't had the chance to completely rewrite this. And again, I also haven't had the chance to rewatch a lot of films uh, to get m some more determinate examples. And in some cases, the examples I give are uh, just the first things that came to mind because I, I was pressed for time uh, because I'm trying to learn about electromagnetism and it's, it hurts my head. Um, and there are also a few uh, language inconsistencies. Sometimes uh, later I use more broad language of drama and play, whereas earlier on, I, for reasons you'll see, I was sticking to the word tragedy, but uh, I don't want to uh, uh, do that for various reasons. I'm, I may not correct it. And there's one other difficulty uh, <laughs> already suggested. When I was in graduate school, one of my roommates said to me, how come Tom and I, who go to see movies every single chance we get, while you never go to see movies, never know any of the movies you've ever seen. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know what it is, but for somehow I, I have a, uh, a nose for the, the less well-known movie, and I will mention a lot of movies here, uh, and I hope that you've heard of some of them. Um, I also want to say this is uh, uh, for Mike Payetta, if he were still alive, uh, this would have been a better paper because uh, I could have mined him. Um, when I, it's interesting, when I read, uh, read through reviews by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, James Agee or James Aggie, but uh, when I felt like he was like Mike Payetta was talking to me. <laughs> it was very, very strange. Uh, and I don't have a joke. Uh, but I, I thought, you know, I almost uh, did something on music, and I thought, well, you might like to know about this little anecdote. Rossini has all the best lines in, I don't mean musical lines, all the best jokes in, in, uh, in music history. And, and one day, uh, somebody took a couple of pieces to Rossini and said, you know, I got to play for a benefit. And I wrote two piano pieces, and I want to know which one you like better. So he played one of them, and then uh, Rossini said, don't play the other one. I like it better. Uh, so, so yeah, that may console you uh, at the end of this. You think, hi, oh, wow, I bet he could have written something really good on music. Uh, okay, so. In the following remarks, I propose to answer three questions. First, whether film, or to speak a little more accurately, narrative film, only a little more accurately, is an art. Second, how the art of narrative film distinguishes itself from other arts, principally drama and the novel. Third, what are the powers most proper to narrative film insofar as it is an art? To answer the first question, whether film is an art, I'll do three things. First, I'll make clear the sense of art in question. Second, I'll clarify what sort of film I'm presently discussing. Third, I will reformulate and give a preliminary answer to the question. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas gives a general definition of art that can be restated more or less as a correct ordering of reason by which human acts can arrive at their proper end by determinate means. In the strictest sense, such an art is a reasoned understanding of the soul by which the artist produces his work or opus. Uh, often we just call that 
the art, a, a work of art. So a poet might write a line of iambic pentameter through a definition of such meter. Note here that art in this sense proceeds from an account of the principles, that is the proximate principles. He doesn't have to go all the way to atoms and so on. Uh, for example, stressed and unstressed syllables in iambic pentameter. But we recognize that the works known and perhaps produced by art in the strictest sense are also produced by those who possess not the art, but experience. This experience is also a habit, though not, it is not a universal grasp of principles, but an ability to size up particulars and order them so as to produce a work of art. Such experience is in many ways a necessary adjunct to art, and for the purposes of this study, uh, no distinction will be made between art and such experience. Now, it is a commonplace that art both completes, uh, sorry, it is a commonplace that art completes or perfects things left unfinished by nature and also imitates things found in nature. As I'm understanding art here, all art in some way does both, but not equally. In particular, some arts are clearly devoted to perfecting or completing the things of nature, and these imitate for the sake of such completion. Agriculture, carpentry, and medicine are examples of such arts. Their opus or work is something man needs that nature does not sufficiently bring into existence. Other arts, however, make a work which is itself an imitation. So far as I can see, these also perfect nature in at least two ways. Insofar as that imitation is for the sake of some delight or pleasure, they perfect human life. Further, insofar as the imitation is not merely a representation re of reality, but a manifestation of that reality, the art must refine and perfect the reality imitated. Even the most obscure work of art, and I have no prima facie objection to such obscurity, must somehow clarify, in my understanding, if it, be so, if it is worthy of the name. Now, this manifestation of reality found in the imitation seems to be the basis for the association of these imitative arts with two things. First, the imitative arts are regularly praised or criticized with respect to their realism. Clearly, an imitation is a better imitation because it comes nearer to the thing it imitates. But this cuts both ways. More often, a work of art is praised for its realism. Most, though not all, of the innovations or reformations in the various arts, to my knowledge, have been championed for their realism. Developments in drama, music, painting, opera, as well as film, are thought to be better uh, than the preceding style, precisely because what is, what is new, not as such, but this new thing, is more realistic. Yet works of art are often and reasonably dismissed as mere reproductions, as slavishly realistic. Art's manifestation of reality is also the reason for its association with beauty. Such arts are called the beaux-arts or fine arts, neither accidentally nor mistakenly. For in imitating reality, they're manifesting the natures of what is found in reality. And the delight or pleasure taken in the imitation is the pleasure by which beauty is defined. Note that I am not conceiving these arts as having expression as their immediate purpose. I do not deny that any work of art in some way expresses something of the artist's own interior life, and that's a sense I'm considering expression here, and of the time in which he lives. But such expression is more universal than these fine arts, 
than the fine arts. Further, it is not difficult to see that in many of the greatest works of art, perhaps most of all in Shakespeare, uh, the thought and feeling of the artist dissipates in the sheer representation of reality. In passing, I should state that there are some arts that hover, as it were, between perfecting nature and imitating it. Architecture is the example that comes first to mind. Even if architecture were in no way a fine art, it would be necessary as an art that makes us the homes and buildings that nature provides by chance and instinct to other animals. When, however, it passes from merely making shelters to making the places in which well-ordered human life, both public and private, can be lived, architecture rises to the status of a fine art. I speak of rising here because one must see that the fine arts in some way take a place between the servile arts, which in some way serve the needs of active life, and the liberal arts, whose opus serve the intellect and contemplation immediately. I think it can be said, though I do not propose this contentiously, that such arts serve the part of life we call recreation, though this should, that is the fine arts, though this should not be, suggest that they are in any way frivolous. I mean, they might be frivolous in some other way, sorry. I, that they're simply frivolous, that's what I meant. The final point I wish to make regarding art involves its relation to... I don't have anything against frivolity, please don't take that. The final point I wish to make regarding art involves its relation to human happiness. Again, I do not propose this contentiously as desiring to settle the matter, but merely because I think it clarifies some aspects of art as set of film. I suggest that drama, including comedy, is rightly conceived to be in some way the fullness of art. Most obviously, this is because it has the powers of the lower arts in it. But more importantly, drama represents some human action that leads to happiness or misery. Later, I will say why drama manifests human happiness and misery more exactly than other arts. Maybe I don't really do that. Uh, at present, I'm only, I only suggest that in doing so, drama does something more, uh, does something uh, more or less perfect. Ah, sorry. Drama does something that is present more or less perfectly in every art. If so, the delight we take in art arises from the sense that something of happiness whether found or lost, has been experienced in the artistic uh, imitation. Now I will determine the sort of film, the making of which constitutes the subject of this study. To be clear, film in the sense of the habit by which one makes films is formally the subject of this study. Uh, it considers whether and how such a habit is an art, but this habit is called film from its object, that is, insofar as it makes films. And, of course, almost every time I use the word film in the paper, I'll be talking about those films. Uh, thus, the Oxford English Dictionary defines film as filmmaking considered as an art form. Okay. Clearly, there are several names that signify more or less the same thing. Film, moving pictures, and thus movies, or the pictures. And likewise, cinema from the Greek word for movement. Moving picture obviously names the work from, from the projection of images in such a manner that something appears to move before us. This aspect of the work is clearly essential to what I'm speaking of, not necessarily projection in a certain manner. Right? I, I don't know what that happens now. But. Uh, the name film, however, comes from the traditional means by which this projection was made. The name may also suggest... That's a history lesson for some of you. Eh? Uh, <laughs> 
The name may also suggest the manner in which a moving picture is most appropriately experienced, for some of us, in a hall on the wall of which such images can be seen, quote-unquote, larger than life. However gratifying this way of experiencing the film may be, and granting that some films do not make the transition to the small screen very well, I think that we can generally agree that substantially the same work of art is experienced in this traditional manner and upon the home screen. I myself have seen the vast majority of the films I know on a 37-inch screen at home. The one reservation I'm inclined to make is the broadcast of film interrupted by commercial breaks. Although in many of today's large, longer films I admire the intermission uh, built into many older films, I suspect the constant interruption, at least, takes away from the flow or movement proper to the genre. Now, what I've, again, what I'm suggesting is that, it seems to me, is not the real, not quite the same experience, eh? uh, or significantly not the same experience. Now, what I've described so far is often spoken of as the one thing. Many books on filmmaking have a chapter on the documentary, even if they make clear that they're concentrating on the sort of film closer, a, a sort of film closer to what I have in mind here. In this sense, film or moving picture is equivocal. Likewise, literature is often spoken as one thing, comprising poetry, novels, essays, and so on. But in neither case is the, even letters, uh, but in neither case is the name said univocally. To me, a sense of the word film is quite clear in which the word distinguishes some films from documentaries, filmed concerts, film sports, perhaps cartoons, and in principle, any number of other films. This sense is, so far as I can see, the sense by which the OED defines film as an art. Their definition reads, a, cinematogra a cinematographic representation of a story, drama, episode, event, etc. Uh, this sense is clearly most related to dramatic productions, whether or not in verse. It seems clear to me that we use the, the word film most properly in this sense. This is more or less the sense of film by which I want to define the habit of filmmaking. I make one qualification regarding the order in which films deserve this name. Uh, with the drama or the play, one can see without much difficulty, maybe that's not true, uh, that comedy and tragedy are not equally dramas or plays. This is not to say that they are not univocally named by these terms, but as affirmation and negation are univocally named statements or propositions, while in reality, the negation clearly depends upon and is therefore posterior to the affirmation, so comedy and tragedy may bear these names equally, play or, or drama, uh, although the nature of one may be prior to the other. That's the sense of priority or order I have in here in mind here. Similarly, one might easily admit that for some reason dramas in verse are more perfectly dramas, uh, sorry, excuse me, uh, so one might easily admit that for some reason dramas in verse are more perfectly dramas than those employing prose. Uh, further, one might make these judgments without necessarily seeing the reason why. Okay, I'm not making that latter claim, I'm just saying that's a similar case. So I'm here proposing a discussion of film according to which various kinds or genre of film must be taken in order. So tragedy is in some way prior to or more perfect than comedy. In asserting this, I must admit that my appreciation of comedy, while healthy, is limited by temperament, 
And someone might, without becoming frivolous, <clears throat> in a bad sense of the word, enjoy comedy very much more than I. Okay, I have to admit that. Uh, sufficient evidence, I suggest, can be found in considering the greatest comedies. Uh, that is, uh, that, that uh, tragedies prior to comedy. First, only those addicted to comedy, I suspect, would consider them equal or better than the greatest tragic films. Uh, second, there is reasonably less agreement about the best comedies, as appreciation of the genre tends to depend upon temperament and character, the, the temperament and character, uh, more than the appreciation of tragedy does. Third, comedies are infamous, infamously more time-bound than tragedies. The ultimate reason for this order, I suggest, is simply the fact that comedy is defined by the laughable and the ludicrous, but human life, which film, if an art must in some way imitate, is serious. Likewise, I'm not saying there's no relation or anything, but likewise, various kinds of film are in many, in some ways, secondary, whether one clearly sees why this is so or not. The James Bond films are, uh, as, for example, are examples of some larger genre. Uh, sorry. The, the James Bond films, as examples of some larger genre, seem to fall short of film in the perfect sense simply because he lives in an amoral world. Uh, this is to say the films represent him not as an immoral man, nor do they crit critique social morality by proposing him as the truly moral man. Rather, they simply set a boundary upon reality so that his actions do not have full moral worth, or perhaps moral worth uh, in all the moral categories, and this is clearly seen in their plots. Uh, thus, such a genre of film is necessarily secondary. For various reasons, science fiction and fantasy films, westerns and samurai films, in uh, the limited sense of samurai films, uh, I mean, uh, as opposed to, I don't mean period films. There's a, there's, a, there's a Japanese word for period films, and I don't, I don't mean that. That's what we often translate, samurai films. Uh, musicals, most of what we call religious films, and any number of genre fall short of the full nature and power of the film. Uh, note, however, that in many of these genres, perhaps in any of them, uh, I don't have an example for musical yet, uh, a particular film may take the genre beyond its proper uh, limitations. So, for example, uh, Kira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai is an excellent film, simply speaking, although it obviously achieves this uh, within the limits of what might be thought as secondary genre. Many feel, th feel this way about The Searchers uh, with John Wayne. I haven't yet got that way, but... Uh, note also that certain distinctions we make most commonly in film, and incidentally, these, per, uh, these, uh, these arise from its technology, uh, need not imply an order in the kind of film. Most clear to me is the distinction between the color film and the black and white. So far as I can see, this distinction touches essentially upon a film's power as two films combining color footage with uh, black and white, Kurosawa's High and Low and Victor Fleming's Wizard of Oz, particularly convince me that it does. That is, there's a very different power uh, from the use of color alternated with the, the lack of it. Nonetheless, each of these kinds of film can possess the full power of film as perfectly as possible. I'm not saying The Wizard of Oz has the full power of film, but... Uh, <laughs> It does get scary. Uh, anyone, who's, anyone whose list of the greatest films does not include at least a few of each uh, has not seen enough films. Eh? And though I have seen only one 3D film, 
I feel, uh, actually, I, I, I w- I've been to two, I've sat through two of them. I just couldn't see the first one because I had to take off my glasses to put on the third glasses, right? Uh, <laughs> so though I've only seen one 3D film, I feel as certain in passing that this style of filmmaking is uh, distinctly secondary. I give reasons, but there's no, no point in wasting time here. I'm less certain about another distinction in film, the silent film and the talkie. Uh, instinct, habit, and a few reasons suggest to me that the silent film is secondary. Uh, they often demand reading, which is clearly something extraneous to the nature and power of film. And whether one reads dialogue or the filmmaker can present an action without it, such silence uh, attenuates the experience of action as it really exists. Further, the fact that comedy, a secondary genre, uh, succeeds in the silent films better than tragedy uh, suggests that the mode itself is secondary. On this understanding, the small handful of silent films I consider perfect, I'm not saying there aren't more, I'm just saying uh, these are the ones I, such as Eisenstein's uh, Battleship Potemkin, Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, and to a slightly lesser extent, Victor Sjostrom's uh, uh, The Phantom Carriage, uh, must be judged as transcending the genre. On the other hand, two things make me fear these inclinations. One is merely the judgment of those who know silent film well and believe it equal or even better than the talkie. This is qualified or perhaps answered by the fact that most of the people are considering comedy most of all. Uh, Thus, James Agee wrote a famous tribute to the comedies of the silent era. So Jacques Tati drew much of the inspiration for his own comic style uh, from Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Uh, I must say, I actually just last Saturday saw uh, Our Hospitality by Buster Keaton with a live orchestra uh, at UCLA, and it really brought uh, tears to my eyes. The experience was itself so beautiful, though it it didn't change my opinion fundamentally. but, uh, 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 But... it was very, very powerful. Uh, the other reason I feel a hesitation to judge this question uh, is yet unresolved in my mind. The two uh, directors I admire most, Satyajit Ray and Akira Kurosawa, each assert somewhere that among, and I don't have that exactly, but one of them I do, uh, that among the most fundamental principles of filmmaking is not to say what can be shown. Dialogue or narration that merely states what the viewer does or can look at is otios and therefore detracts from the most proper power of film. So in Rashomon, for example, Kurosawa states clearly that he wished to regain a power found in silent films. Uh, While these things make me hesitate in the judgment that the silent film is in principle a secondary form of genre, I propose an experience which is itself imperfect but I hope revealing. When I was a child, foreign films were still dubbed into English. I remember the discomfort I felt the first time I saw such a film in a theater. By the time I was a young man, subtitles were regular. Almost immediately, I developed a feeling for what we often call the the foreign film for various reasons. But I propose that hearing the sound of the actors, hopefully without dubbing in the original, because there's a lot of that, uh, especially in older films, uh, completes the experience even when one does not understand that language. Again, what I'm proposing is that just hearing them speak the words and hearing the feeling that's in the words uh, is, a, is a significant part of the power of the film. And I'm inclined to think that uh, that's not simply, accent, uh, not simply an, uh, uh, an ornament, I should say. Um, Maybe I should add, uh, 
sometimes I've, I've, for various reasons, seen films in English, dubbed in, into English again, and it's just horrible. Uh, it seems just horrible. I don't, I don't understand why anybody ever did it. But it is a drag to read, and I must say, this, it's, it's worthwhile if you really love a film that's not in English uh, to, to go back and watch it without subtitles. Um, sometimes, you know, if they have commentaries, it's worth it. But so you'll be, be astounded at how much you see. <laughs> wow, this is a pretty picture. Uh, I did it with Seven Samurai. Wow, every single moment is, a, is like a painting. And... and some of the greatest directors considered be becoming painters. I wish now to state the kind of film I'm immediately considering in a positive, though not an overly restrictive manner. I mean, I may be stating it in an overly restrictive manner, but I don't intend to be held that, to that. While I do not want to consider the, tragedy ex the tragic exclusively, I'm speaking about film as though the tragic is naturally prior to the comic. Thus, film, as examined here, is the narrative film that imitates human action insofar as it leads to happiness or misery, as it is more or less commonly experienced without such stylization that the moral sensibility is in some way limited. Such film may obviously focus on certain aspects of the moral life, or perhaps they must. Uh, the principal point is that the moral sensibility, as it is experienced naturally, without the filter of supernatural revelation, uh, must, must be in play. I leave one puzzling exception, namely the heroic suicide, which is not experienced so far as I can see according to the moral character such suicide has in reality. Uh, and I, I just leave that question aside for now. Uh, with this, I hope my last distinction regarding the most proper subject of this uh, study will be clear. I propose that the epic film does not fulfill this account as perfectly as the simple tragedy, quote-unquote simple tragedy. Although it is closer to it than any other genre, uh, more will be said about this when comparing film with drama the novel. At present, let me assert that epic, whether a poem, a novel, or a film, does not consider human action precisely as proportioned individuals who are thus responsible for their own happiness or misery. Rather, in its fullness, it considers the action of a people, uh, maybe a family in some cases, as though such actions action is not perfectly proportioned to individuals. Uh, Epic resolves such action to its proper principle, the gods or gods, uh, atheism perhaps in, in Dostoevsky, and so on. Uh, this may explain the deficiency film critic Roger Ebert expresses in his review of Sergei Bondarchuk's War and Peace. Quote, it is vulgar in the way all epic films must be vulgar because they place value on sheer numbers and a massive production scheme. When I read this, I felt enlightened about my constant disappointment with films that are most properly called epic. I also thought he probably explained my disagreement with uh, Bondarchuk's uh, War and Peace. Uh, then I recalled that I'd seen the film in a modified version that fit, uh, 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 that fit the smaller screen, the, the old the old uh, proportions. Suspecting this may have had something to do with my disappointment, I obtained and watched the film in its proper aspect ratio. I was not surprised that I found it an exception to Ebert's general judgment against Epic, although I do agree with his judgment. I, I should say there, uh, I, I, so I did really love the film when I saw it in its, its full uh, proper aspect ratio, but I also felt that I should have been seeing it on a big screen, eh? and I think that's, that's one of the uh, 
one of the things that's maybe proper to epic film. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll like Lawrence of Arabia if I can ever see it that way. Yeah. Now the first question can be restated. Uh, now the first question can be restated. Is there a distinct art, an intellectual habit, by which an imitation of serious action acted out by persons determined and Oh gosh, well, I gave them far more. You'll see later why this is so, so, so determined already. Uh, is there a distinct art, an intellectual habit, by which an imitation of serious action through projecting moral images is made? Now, the question is more than rhetorical. If the answer to the question is not seriously in doubt, the reason for this answer is not so clear. There are some reasonable objections to film as an art. To my mind, these come down to two aspects of the medium itself. Insofar as film is a mere recording, it does not seem distinct from the art which it records. Insofar as it relies upon technology, film seems not to be an art at all. Let me elaborate upon these objections. What seems immediately clear to me is that the recording of music does not constitute an art distinct from the previously uh, existing art of music. True studio recording makes possible a few things that are impossible, makes possible a few things that are impossible live. Uh, most obviously, one musician can play more than one instrument or sing more than one line, and these can be played back simultaneously. So Placido Domingo sings both the baritone Figaro and the tenor Lindoro of uh, one recording of, of a particular uh, duet, uh, which accidentally is also filmed, of the Barber of Seville. Uh, clearly, the audio recording does not demand any art beyond music. Uh, nor do I suspect that anyone would propose that such a trick as Alec Guinness playing, uh, what is seven or eight roles in Kind Hearts and Cornets, is what makes film an art distinct from dramatic theater. Uh, what I want to make clear is that the mere recording of drama does not constitute a new art. This can be seen in numerous recordings of dramatic presentations, uh, whether or not involving a live performance. Uh, this can be experienced easily in a number of recordings of Shakespeare, some of which I commend as of particular excellence. Uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company's The Winter's Tale and their, their Julius Caesar, the Royal Shakespeare Theater's The Comedy of Errors, and recent recordings from The Globe, especially its As You Like It. Uh, these do not even attempt to become film in the sense I will defend as a distinct art. But there are films that take Shakespeare, quote, unquote, off the stage. Of course, Laurence Olivier plays with this very idea in his Henry V, passing from a stage production into a film about stage production into a true film, uh, and so on. Ingmar Bergman does something similar with uh, Mozart's uh, Magic Flute. Comparison of the San Francisco Repertory Theater's production of The Taming of the Shrew, put out by Broadway Theater Archive, uh, with Zeffirelli's film uh, would make this distinction of a recorded play and a narrative film particularly clear. Each is very good, if not excellent. Uh, another worthwhile comparison can be found in Richard Burton's Hamlet, uh, directed by John Gilgood, and Peter Brook's Hamlet. Uh, the one is a full final rehearsal without costumes, scenery, and props. The other is a film made in a theater. The one is not quite a theater performance. The other hovers between an intimate recording of such a performance and a narrative film of the sort I am presently examining. Uh, sometimes seeing the things that aren't quite one or the other, can help you see the, the extremes. Oh, I could go on and on about that, with the examples of that, but 
uh, I hope you get the idea. Another objection to the understanding of film as an art is its reliance upon technology. I cannot examine the distinction between technology and art here in any detail. Let me propose the general conception of art as correct reasoning applied to the making of things. Uh, technology, insofar as it is distinguished from this understanding of art, involves precisely making things with instruments whose causes uh, are unknown, and insofar as no act of reason is demanded in the proper use of these instruments. Thus, general objections to photography suggest that the photographer is merely taking pictures. Uh, he just records what is there. Clearly, this objection is quite just for most still photography. Uh, the tedium of many home movies suggests that the objection has some force against moving pictures, too. Uh, such recording may give us images taken from life all too accurately, especially if you're the, if you're the thing filmed. Eh? Uh, no, don't you, you don't want to see it again. Many find the Italian neorealist movement in film to fall short for just this reason. They say there's no art in it. They just went out in the street and started filming things. Uh, uh, that's one of the objections against uh, 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 Rome Open City, against uh, bicycle thieves. They may not really or apparently distinguish themselves, uh, themselves sufficiently from nature to constitute an imitation. According to this objection, there might be many reasons that various pictures, moving or still, draw us and keep us looking, but these are accidental to photography's inability to rise above technology so that it might become true art. Okay? And you'll be grateful, I cut out several paragraphs after each of these objections in which I rail against uh, 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 the, the destructive qualities of recording and of technology in general to art as such. Eh? Um, so, <laughs> just just be grateful. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure that I was going to write anything else as when I, I kept going. So. <clears throat> to answer these objections, I'll do three things. Oh. Right, so th these are all just, just negative. You don't get so far as art. The other things we're saying, and they kill art. Okay, so to answer these objections, I'll do three things. I will recall the principles proposed by Aristotle in the Poetics for distinguishing and thus defining arts. Then I'll identify the principles by which the play and the novel are defined. Uh, finally, I will propose uh, the principles definitive of film with particular attention to the relation of these to the art of the play and that of the novel. Now, Aristotle famously proposes that the imitative arts, quote, differ from each other by three things. For by imitating with things other in kind, or by imitating things other in kind, or by imitating otherwise or in another way. First, let me note that I do not sense that Aristotle's word, using the word genus, here translated kind, according to its distinct logical sense, uh, by which it is said relative to species. Rather, it seems to me to abstract from whether these arts differ in genus or species or even from whether such a distinction is applicable, uh, simply speaking to the imitative arts. You've got to say that to a crowd like this. Eh? Second, I propose a brief understanding of three kinds of otherness. Uh, is that the next sentence? I guess that is the first sentence. Okay. Uh, first, an imitation must be an imitation of something, its object, imitations of things other in kind will be imitations uh, other in kind. 
likewise an imitation insofar as it is an imitation and not the thing imitated, must be in some way other than the thing imitated. Uh, that which is other or distinct from the imitated is that which is found, sorry, in that, gosh, I can't believe I wrote this. Uh, or I didn't rewrite it, I know that. Uh, that which is other or distinct from the imitated is that in which is found that by which it imitates the imitated. Gosh, if you want to replace Hegel, I could do it. This, this is that with which the art imitates its object, namely the means of imitation. Uh, imitations with means other in kind, even of the same things, will be imitations other in kind. Finally, since the imitation is not the object, but something in which a likeness to the thing is found, the imitation falls short of the thing imitated. Uh, it, it is not, that's not necessarily a deficiency of it, right? It is not the object by nature. To my mind, such a falling away implies that it does not imitate one aspect or another of the object. Since the objects we are speaking of are material beings in which there are manifold aspects, there are many ways in which the imitation may fall short of its object. Even imitations of the same things with the same means may determine distinct ways in which the object is imitated. I will later propose this part of the that this part of the definition is particularly significant in any arts realism. I don't know if I do that or not. Now, Aristotle has already proposed the defining principles as well as the parts or elements of the tragic uh, drama or play. I will briefly review his deduction of these elements from tragedy's defining principles while pointing out how the novel agrees with or differs from it. In stating the defining principles, Aristotle uh, begins by establishing the object of tragedy, a serious action sufficiently great to be a complete action. The most immediate means is language. Finally, this action is, is imitated by acting it out rather than merely telling or narrating it. From these, Aristotle deduces six elements of tragedy. Uh, I'm using the word elements. He uses the word parts. Uh, uh, from the fact that the action is acted out, we do not merely hear, but we also see the tragedy. This element is traditionally called the spectacle, and I... I, I don't think it's a particularly good name, but I, I don't want to make up another one. Clearly, the spectacle is not an element of the novel. Uh, he calls it the opsis, the seeing it, if you will, uh, the sight of it. Aristotle then points out what melody, that melody and diction are the tragedy's means. I understand him to propose here that these are two aspects of, the tragedy, of tragedy's of the tragedy's language, each of which gives rise to determinate principles in the making of a tragedy. Melody implies both rhythm and consonance or harmony so far as I can see. A novel obviously has language and thereby diction, though the novel seems to be lacking meter and harmony by definition. I wish to note in passing that I'm supposing Aristotle to speak of language here as something heard with the ears. I suspect it is no accident that the novel is too rarely read aloud uh, and often uh, conceived as something experienced wholly in the imagination. I don't know if that's clear. It, it seems to be better if we read novels aloud more often. That's what, and I, uh, but it, does, it seems clear he's thinking of language as something spoken out loud. The novel doesn't demand that. Finally, the action from its nature demands that those who do... Sorry, 
The action from its nature demands those who do the action, uh, who are such as they are by their character and thought. Uh, very, very, thought is the, at least the most usual translation of that word, but uh, it can be translated purpose, that might be better, but sometimes uh, thought is, is the thinking through, it seems to be what it has in mind. It seems to me what's clear is it can't be abstract, abstract thought simply speaking, and often that's how people take it. Uh, I'm sorry, I get the impression that people take it that way, as if the thought is the, is the, uh, is the thought behind the, the whole moral sensibility or it's the author's intention or something like that. Thought here is the, what the agent is thinking of that makes him do what he, uh, what he wants. And that might be abstract, especially like some of those Scandinavian dramas and so on, you know, uh, uh, Ibsen. Um, <coughs> But uh, uh, it might be something. It, it might be presented somewhat abstract. But it only in, it's only going to be at work here insofar as it becomes a principle of action. Therefore, it has to be concrete. Hey, uh, uh, he's not politically correct, so I hate him and that kind of thing. Okay. A lot. We get a lot of that nowadays, right? Uh, uh, and it's not. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Okay, I got lost. Okay. Uh, finally, the okay. Uh, finally, the action from its nature demands those who do this action, who are such as they are by their character and thought or purpose. Further, the element intrinsic to the tragedy that corresponds properly to the action imitated is its plot, the muthos, to give the Greek word. Clearly, all of these are critical to the novel. The novel's fundamentally narrative character, however aided perhaps by silent reading, makes thought especially preeminent, albeit in subordination to plot. Let me sum up the various elements of the tragedy in the novel. I'm accepting the distinctly comic novel. Uh, both imitate human action sufficiently serious and great so as to lead to happiness or misery. Because of this, each have plot as their principal element or part. There must be those who do the action imitated, and these will have some moral character and thought. Both imitate their object and language. The novel uses language alone, and so it has diction, speech is a better translation, I think, uh, as an element or part. I would suggest that one might speak here of rhythm as well. Uh, in the manner in which George Saintsbury uh, wrote a study of English prose rhythm. Okay, so there is, there is rhythm in in. Uh, in the novel, though it's not a meter and so on. Uh, tragedy has an additional element available to it, meter or measured rhythm. Uh, tragedy may be presented in verse, prose, or in a mixture of both. Uh, that's what I'm proposing. Finally, from its mode, the tragedy has a spectacle. The novel from its mode does not, from its manner. This should not imply to my knowledge that narration will not give rise to principles proper to the novel. Okay, that is, narrating is itself going to be something positive, not just negative. But as Aristotle points out, that the spectacle is less the work of the mask maker, so the principles of narration may pertain more to elocution or some other art or technique. The claim that film is an art is therefore a claim that it differs from these and other arts according to its object, means, and manner in such a way that the elements or parts of film and therefore the principles that govern its making, differ from those that govern other arts. I will therefore consider its object, means, and manner, and then determine its proper parts or elements. 
clearly the film considered here has the same object with tragedy in the novel. With them, language is a means uh, to it, even in the silent films of significance. The film is acted out like the tragedy and in distinction from the novel. Already this suggests the more obvious likeness of film to the, to the tragedy or to drama, to the play, which was itself the foundation for the first objection. From its imitation of action, film has plot, character, and thought. So far as I can see, these do not differ much in themselves from the role of these elements in tragedy in the novel. From its means, it has speech or diction, uh, but one would not want to deny the role of music here, uh, though rarely as song, which is, now, which is uh, how melody, harmony, and meter enter into tragedy. Suggestive, suggestive here is the famous claim that when editing Battleship Potemkin, Eisenstein used a metronome. Uh, I don't think that's quite true, but there's something very close to it. We know that the, uh, uh, it was filmed with a tempo. Further, his widow said regarding a recut version of the film that the intertitles were a, a visual, sorry, uh, were a visual and significant element of the montage, the intertitles, right? Uh, when they are removed, the rhythm is lost. Uh, so that she was arguing that even those titles are part of the rhythm of the film. Again, since the film is acted out, it has spectacle, and in this sense, it agrees with tragedy and differs from the novel. So I, one thing I'm, I'm trying to claim here is that we don't want to, in, in speech, we don't want to lose the sense of rhythm uh, um, that might, one might think you lose because of uh, not having meter. Now, one might think that this account is sufficient to distinguish these three arts. All have plot, character, th thought, and diction as elements. The tragedy in film have spectacle, while the novel has only narration. The tragedy, however, has meter, while the film and novel do not. But such a judgment would be precipitous. Since Aristotle, the tragedy, and, and generally drama, has perfected a form using prose alone. This form does not obviously fail in any way to achieve the catharsis of pity and fear in which, which delight the viewer. Further, such plays are often the basis for some of the greatest movies. Nonetheless, as proposed above, one readily distinguishes the mere filming of a play from a movie based upon it. Again, the script, or the film, the script of the film is often called a screenplay. Though you never want to, rarely want to read them. No. Is it funny? I suggest that the distinction between tragedy and the film should be sought by defining the manner more exactly. The manner, sorry, that third, that third part, of the, uh, the third of the defining principles. When Aristotle says, states that insofar as tragedy is acted out, it is seen, and thus involves the spectacle, He's presenting this element without, qualifica the quali without the qualifications now needed to clarify the difference between these arts. The action of the tragedy is acted out, quote, in person before us, but the film projects moving images of actors acting out the action. <coughs> this may not seem like a sufficient distinction. Two things will make it sufficient to seem more clear. First, a distinction that's a distinction that severed the film more completely from tragedy and the drama would be sus suspect. Sorry, something that severed them more completely would be suspect. The film is so close to these arts, tragedy and drama in general, that it often takes their names. Uh, likewise, the practitioners of these arts are often the same people. Uh, those who do 
make both works say clearly that the principles by which they make each work of art are the same in part and differ in part. Second, this distinction in the presentation of the spectacle has significant effects upon our experience of the imitation of the action. One might say that the play imitates action as observed in actual human life by a still and inactive observer. The film, however, imitates action as observed by someone able to shift his point of view, not only with respect to place and time, but also with respect to the agents of the action. The audience can look with the eyes of an impartial observer or, again, with the eyes of those who act out the drama and begin with their imagination, with their memory, and so on. I will develop this understanding in the remaining two parts. For now, let me summarize the account of film as, as an art producing an imitation of action significant in length and moral worth through language, usually with music, by projection of moving images of agents acting it out. Note that here I leave aside the question of whether my distinct mention of music, something I understand is common to music and drama, is simply a more explicit statement of Aristotle's understanding or an addition. I'm not trying to settle that question. Next is a comparison of film, drama, and novel to clarify what are the most proper elements of each, uh, which, will be found, uh, which will found the principles proper to the art. Thus, insofar as they agree more or less in imitation of a human action, leading to happiness and misery, they share many rules, as it were, for plot, character, and thought, uh, and these are laid more, more or less in, laid out in Aristotle's poetics. Speech and its principles will be common, too. Nonetheless, all of these may differ and will be affected by the, their differences regarding music and spectacle, uh, and, as I've suggested, especially the, the latter, the spectacle. Attention to what's proper to them, to these arts, can be made clearer by consideration of an agreement at a much higher level. Though the imitative arts as a whole prescribe certain rules for the movements by which their works come to be, some of their imitations themselves are mobile or dynamic, while others are still or static. The painting and the sculpture themselves exist all at once and do not move, however necessary the observer's movement may be to grasp and appreciate the work. Think above all of uh, Hans Holbein's The Ambassadors, uh, one element of which can only be seen from a particular angle. Uh, I'm not trying to take that as illustrative of the, that particular painting as illustrative of the art as a whole, but it's just a fact. You can't appreciate that, uh, that uh, work of art unless you look at part of it uh, uh, from a different angle than you look at the, the whole but the dynamic arts have an object that only exists in movement. This emphasizes something common to all art, that the work must in some way be composed or synthesized in the observer himself. Even the painting's elements must be analyzed and then brought together with some appreciation in the viewer's interior powers. But in the dynamic arts, no part of the work exists all at once outside the, the observer. Rather, the various parts are always passing. Several consequences must be noted. First, the various parts in the whole work must in some way be held in what I will for now uh, call merely the memory. Second, the grasp and the appreciation of the work, particularly at its climax and end, they're not the same thing necessarily, uh, cannot occur independent of the memory. Nevertheless, 
Uh, the work must be understood to be completed in the very images, actions, words, or combination thereof that constitute some last part of the opus, even if these uh, are words imagined while reading. Okay, so again, I'm, there, there's, a, there's a significant contribution to the integrity of the work made by these interior powers, uh, but uh, I'm not that. Don't think that I'm saying we remake the work of art. Simply speaking, and and that the experience is not uh, fundamentally completed out there in the object. I'm not denying that. Now I will begin the consideration proper to the three arts mentioned with a comment from Aristotle's Poetics. In arguing that the spectacle is the least proper of the elements of tragedy, he gives as evidence the fact that quote. The tragedy's power occurs even without the actors and the acting out. He should not be read here as though he thinks these are accidental to the tragedy or to drama as a genre, but he's pointing out an aspect of the tragedy that will be helpful in comparing it to the others. First, the novel seems to take... Uh, uh, ooh. The novel seems to take as such an isolation of this isolation of dramatic power to its limit. There is no acting out, no actor, no music, no scene, no props, no masks. All that remains is an object independent of the observer. Sorry, all that remains as an object independent of the observer are the novel's words. These have slightly more independence when read out loud. And though I do not think reading aloud is negligible in the novel, I cannot see that it is critical and certainly not definitive, especially as the exterior word itself must always be completed by an interior conception uh, and, even, and also by an interior imagination. What follows immediately from this is the fact that the tragedy or drama is never experienced perfectly without some performance, however exquisite might be one's sensitivity to its power. The novel, however, exists complete and perfect, even if read entire without even a movement of the lips. This fact tells much about the relative power of the elements common to the genre. From this, it follows that the novel is tied much closer to certain elements of the observer's interior reconstruction. There is no spectacle apart from his imagination of these events. No actor distinct from the novel's reader forces upon him a reading of a character's lines. The character and purpose of the plot's agents are not sensed objectively as present in men and women outside the observer. Rather, they are known only in the interior conception, uh, might be imaginative as well, I don't deny that, uh, that would otherwise complement words brought forth from an actor who has taken on a character uh, by which he embodies the character and thought or purpose of some agent of the plot. Uh, one of the problems, uh, I have to use the word character sometimes to talk about the, the dramatis persona, uh, uh, and sometimes to use, talk about his moral character. In the drama, these elements, and to this extent, the action, are experienced more distinctly as belonging to distinct and particular men and women. In this way, the dramatic object is more realistic. Uh, this is closer to the way in which actual human action exists and is experienced. But as in life, the interpretation of that action is limited by the power of dialogue or conversation. The novel gains in its interior depth. We can see so much more and so much more distinctly the passions and motives that constitute the characters of the play. A certain leisure in piecing out and meditating upon these aspects of a novel can give it even greater power. 
The drama, however, drives on whether or not we have grasped the significance of its elements uh, or our delight in them has been satiated. Uh, You don't really enjoy a novel if you don't sometimes just want to read some of its lines over and over again, uh, uh, and you you can't get that kind of uh, uh, encore out of a a, a dramatic performance. eh? From this, one, from this one might infer that I will propose that the film, being tied more to the spectacle than drama, is yet more objective. I do admit one sense in which this is so. An anecdote uh, will be of use here. Once I attended a live performance of Twelfth Night, performed entirely by men in the old style. Uh, the intrigue at an opportunity to see how boys play the female roles was undone, however, when I heard the day before the performance that the man playing Olivia, the famous one, was nearing 40 years old. Uh, <laughs> I thought, that could get gross, I thought. Uh, <laughs> I went anyway and was astounded when, stepping slightly upon his toes and taking a certain weight from his voice, he became Olivia. Uh, And he was a rather muscular man uh, whose broad shoulders were only accentuated by the low cut of his dress. Still, these little tricks sufficed, and I suspended disbelief. Uh, I, and, and, and in fact, if he had done more, I think I would have, have uh, resisted more. Eh? But just two, three little things, and I, I, it was like, like uh, uh, playing house as a little kid. Eh? Uh, such tricks cannot work on film. Uh, the demands are higher for realism in film, though such realism is still a product of art. Consideration of the reason that realism is so strict in film will also lead to an understanding of the distance of film from objectivity together with the novel and away from drama. Uh, that's one of the claims I'm making. The film is not, in fact, ultimately more objective. It's, I think it's less so. Now, not, by the way, the way I'm using objective, subjective here has nothing to do with whether there's subjective morality or it's subjectively beautiful or anything like that. I, all I'm claiming is it has less, it's, it's less close to the experience of the object as an object and much more tied to your own interior recreation of it. That's, what, that's the claim I'm making. Now, the source for the hyperrealism of film can be found in its technology, the camera. The camera in its is in its nature an extension of the human visual power. Note that it is not in itself an imitation of objects as perceived by this power, as for example is painting. Rather, it instantiates the very experience of seeing. This may happen moment by moment as in still photography or again over time, insofar as the limitations of human visual powers leave pictures moving uh, at a certain rate in a certain way indistinguishable from objects moving before us. And I say in a certain way, nobody ever really, uh, uh, maybe, maybe the first time people saw films, they were a little frightened at the train coming in and things like that. But uh, no one really thinks that those things are real things. Eh? Uh, and while I have made clear that I do not consider technology to be such, uh, as such to be art, some art may follow technology insofar as there are acts of reason that relate its use to certain effects. However much art may go in the, into making the camera, no art is involved in merely making a reproduction of a visual image by its means. Art will occur uh, once one proposes to use the camera in determinate ways to produce visual images of ver- various kinds with various powers. Film I propose determines its imitation of action precisely by the addition of such an art of moving visual images. 
The drama imitates action by live actors acting them out before us with all the powers and limitations that follow its manner of imitation. The novel imitates actions by narrating them in words uh, that are hardly distinguishable from the observer's own thoughts with the powers and limitations proper to this manner. Film imitates actions by presenting moving visual images of actors acting them out with the powers and limitations proper to such a manner. That hyperrealism should arise with its own artistic strengths and limitations should not surprise. But this realism gives the false sense that the film is yet more objective in its representation than is the drama. I propose that its contraction to the visual image, to the artificial eye, involves a necessary determination to imitating sight itself and the various interior powers that immediately follow sight, uh, imagination, judgment, memory, in the various forms these may be taken. I'm using the word judgment here to talk about a sensitive, uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, judgment of particular things, eh? the work of the particular reason or the vis cogitativa. An illustration of this understanding can be found in one of the greatest and most perfect films ever made, in my opinion, uh, Kira Kurosawa's Rashomon. We are told a story by various characters, principally a bandit, a samurai who dies, his wife who has been raped in his presence, uh, and by a woodcutter who uh, watched the event in hiding. Each proposes a significantly different account of what has happened. Whether any of them is conscious he is lying is beyond my present consideration. What I suggest is that we experience in this film the appearance of reality, but in fact we're experiencing another's memory or perhaps some false imagination that he foists upon us. But in some way, even if the camera is not always showing us his visual field, the, uh, we are all, that is the, the character's visual field, we are always watching what some one of these characters has experienced or feigns to have experienced. This is exaggerated in Rashomon by the fact that for most of the film, these characters are testifying in court. Uh, but we do not see or hear the judge. Rather, we see from his vantage point, we take on the role of judge. Okay? So uh, that's actually used as part of the stylization of the film. To make this account more universal, I suggest that when in a film... Uh, when we do not take on the role of judge or the particular conscious experience of some character, we generally take on unconsciously the role of narrator. For the events in the film, in particular the integration of many different visual fields, is necessarily the work of the observer. Uh, in the novel, in some sense, the novelist does that for you, eh? even though you have to read it and so on, but they're telling you what happens. We, in some sense, tell the story alongside. It's like going to a ballet uh, assuming the ballet has a story. Perhaps this is the reason that for some time uh, the editor was thought to be the principal maker of the film, the one who uh, had the art par excellence. Kurosawa says explicitly that he considers editing the most important part uh, in making a film. The following account of film is a refinement of what has been drawn from the comparison with drama and the novel. Its details will be confirmed in answering the third and final question, uh, film is an art imitating serious action, having a plot and acted by various persons, having moral, moral character and thought or persons, through language and music, by the projection of visual images that reproduce an act of sight or visual imagination, insofar as such an act is presently judged or remembered or, or, uh, or as something to be judged. Eh? Uh, one maybe can say that it presents through words and music an action as seen, imagined, and remembered, or apt to be judged. 
And perhaps it should be emphasized here that this must all be taken as the foundation for an art that understands the ability of such a work uh, uh, to produce the tragic and secondarily the comic passion, right? That's the art, is the one that knows how to, how to uh, use those elements to produce the right, the, the delightful, the passions that cause delight. The third question was proposed at the beginning. What are the powers most proper to film? Answering this uh, demands brief attention to the distinction between powers common to various acts and those proper to one. After doing the arts, uh, sorry, common uh, powers and proper. After doing this, I'll make a remark or two about the powers common to drama and film, then I'll answer the question directly. And this doesn't go on as long as some of the other stuff. When Aristotle states that the tragedy's power exists even without the actors acting it out, he points out what we all experience, that there's something common experienced in watching a drama and in reading it. This is uh, clearly what we experience in the likeness of the novel and short story to the drama, and even more in the likeness of film and, uh, and drama. Whatever is common to all three and any other genre will give rise to the rules that in some sense constitute these arts. So in his preface to the novella, Joseph Andrews, uh, which can be taken out as laying the, the principles of all his novels, Henry Fielding suggests that his determinations regarding comedy complete Aristotle's consideration of the tragic. Uh, yet the model for comedy is quite clearly Cervantes' Don Quixote. Uh, Fielding rightly understands that there's something common to his art and the art that Aristotle examines, and that what is common is prior to what distinguishes these arts. <coughs> Note that this does not exclude the possibility or perhaps the necessity that whatever is proper to the art uh, that has things in common with others will determine the rules that guide what's common. Now, certain rules, that is, they won't just be left amorphous. They're going to be determined by the, the proper principles. Now, certain rules that Aristotle lays out in the poetics regarding the nature and unity of action, the action imitated, for example, the character, the hero, and so on, must be common to these three arts. Uh, the rules must, however, be adapted to the particular art, since Aristotle clearly presents them in the manner proper to drama. Even if uh, the... Even, okay, that's the same thing. Uh, let me add also that I understand Aristotle to present them to the dramatist that needs them. Uh, we have a couple letters sent to Mozart. Uh, um, uh, actually, I, guess, I don't know, maybe we just have one. Uh, it's complaining. Uh, apparently, the composer had asked him for how to write a, uh, a question, how to write a symphony, and then he, uh, uh, Mozart had written back, here's how to write a, a, a quartet. And so he says, hey, why, why'd you write, why'd you uh, insult me by writing uh, rules for how to write a quartet? I asked you how to write a symphony. You were writing symphonies way, uh, uh, way uh, uh, when you were much younger than I, and we do have have uh, Mozart's reply back, I didn't need to ask anybody how. Okay? So I understand Aristotle I understand Aristotle to be writing uh, these rules not to try to tell the master how what he has to do, but to tell the beginner, here's how you get better. Uh, the master uh, knows when he can bend rules, break rules, things like that. Uh, and Aristotle had to learn from those masters what the principles were by watching, watching their works. Eh? As the novel lacks the spectacle, which is common to film and drama, these arts must have more rules. Uh, these arts must have more rules that apply to them in common. That is, film and drama. These arts must have more rules that are common to them. So, a very popular book exists called Aristotle's Poetics for Screenwriters, with the subtitle "Storytelling Secrets from the Greatest Mind in Western Civilization." I, I trust this crowd won't uh, complain about that subtitle. Uh, while many, uh, we won't quibble over it. Uh, 
While many of its chapters might be useful to a novelist, others have titles that clearly imply a spectacle. Quote, whatever causes the action better be up there on the screen. Quote, action speaks louder than words and together they can speak volumes and so on. The principles or rules discussed in such a... By the way, action doesn't speak without words uh, uh, at all in the novel. Eh? Um, the principles or rules discussed in such chapters will concern the importance of using the available principles uh, in the spectacle to manifest the action imitated. Now, the proper rules for film will follow immediately from the aspects of the spectacle that are proper to it. I do not, however, want to suggest that these will be limited to the spectacle. Clearly, the speaking of dialogue in a theater affects the manner in which they're delivered and probably even the sort of dialogue possible. This can make a film theater performance difficult to watch. Again, when the image, uh, when the image is fixed forever as it is in film, music can have a more determinate power, uh, but at the cost, perhaps, of a certain freedom. Nonetheless, I will be attending only to the aspects proper to the spectacle, since these are the principles of the proper effects, even with other elements of the film. And uh, the more I go on here, the less uh, finished this is. I will begin by considering, but don't worry, that doesn't mean it's unending. <laughs> I will begin by considering the representation of the act of sight. Now, some concerns are clearly more material than others. Most immediately, certain aspects of the projected image arise. Is this image black and white, tinted, or in color? Further, one film can... Uh, one film can really use all three. Ah, gosh, where is this? Yeah. Further, one film can really use all three, albeit for some effect. Uh, again, is the image uh, in the ratio of four three or uh, four to three in one of the various widescreen ratios? Uh, there are others. Uh, the use of uh, uh, dissolves, uh, irises, wipes, all kinds of things come up. Uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, where you, where you switch sound before you switch sight, things like that. Uh, I don't go into any of those, but uh, it'd be fun to. I suppose that answers to these questions must be resolved, uh, the ones I've just mentioned, to the real properties of sight. For now, I can only make some provisional suggestions. Seeing black and white involves the use of our eyes, rods only, while seeing color involves the use of rods and cones. Eh? In my understanding, very schematic at present, uh, maybe forever. Uh, the black and white vision is particularly apt to bring out the figures of things, though it does not distinguish the things figured very much. Color has just the opposite effect. It highlights the distinct surfaces, but obscures their edges. In fact, a black and white film without very distinct figures is simply hard to see. Uh, many great black and white films, such as Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and Othello, uh, involve many scenes in which certain shapes stand out almost in an iconic manner. Uh, both these films by Orson Welles use light and shadows uh, to suggest bars and cages that constrain the hero at different times. Again, Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc uses this effect with particular power in the scene in which St. Joan is presented with the instruments of torture. Along the same lines, I mentioned Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal and Virgin Spring, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, High and Low and Stray Dog, and go with a lot of films. <coughs> uh, Phantom Carriage, uh, uh, and which uh, it uses uh, tint, tinting in interesting ways as well. Yeah. Perhaps this is one reason why a filmmaker like Kurosawa came late to making color films, especially given the uneven quality of color film for some time. When he did make color films, he often made very brightly colored films like Ron and Kagamusha, uh, though uh, there are others as well. Uh, there are some color films that even seem to luxuriate uh, 
in the bleeding of color over the screen rather than bright, distinct patches of, of colors. Uh, some films of Hermano Olmi, uh, one of my favorites, seem to have this character, the tree of the wooden clogs, the profession of arms. Though I've never been able to hear the profession, uh, uh, see, to understand the profession of arms because I only have it in, a, uh, uh, in, a, in an Italian unsubtitled performance. Likewise, Kurosawa's Dertsuala, uh, sorry, Dertsuala, uh, I think this film, Bright Star, that's my memory of this charming musical, uh, uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's just a, just a wash of color, pastel colors. Uh. Yet a few films, and Lucchini, uh, Lucchino Visconti may be the master here, seem to balance the sense of figure and the harmony of color. Uh, I, of color against color quite perfectly. Uh, the Visconti Senso is the one that most comes most readily to mind. So I, there I leave that partly as unresolved. I should add here that I've not yet introduced the question of lenses. The telephoto lens, for example, by changing the apparent sizes of farther and nearer things, seems to flatten the image and sharpen the figures. Uh, yet clearly this, as well as the question of color or black and white, will affect our sense of focus in the act of sight, whether one focuses on color or figure, whether one focuses on near, far, and so on. The question of widescreen or full screen must also be resolved to the visual field. Both ratios are wider than they are tall. Note that this is opposed to our standard for the photograph, uh, which seems to be the the half uh, portrait. Uh, the general principle in cinematographic ratio seems to be founded on the character of our visual field, which from the orientation of our two eyes extends, extends more across. The 4-3 ratio seems to give us a general sense of the field upon which we're focusing. The widescreen seems immediately to reproduce the field so as to include our peripheral vision. This certainly fits some of the names for widescreen technology, especially the early ones. Vistavision, Cinerama, Cinescope, uh, Tohoscope, Panavision. Uh, the first widescreen film seemed to underscore this fact, perhaps too the near necessity of filming epic in widescreen. Uh, again, some films leave one with this feeling. Uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven uh, and Peter Weir's Gallipoli, as well as Kurosawa's color film The Samurai, come immediately to mind. Uh, that is to say that you, you're, you're just looking at something that's just you can't completely capture with your eyes. But this might be too hasty. In fact, widescreen is capable of greater contrast of focus than full screen. Though it can provide the impression of panorama, it can also suggest the most intense focus. The widescreen close-up seems to force the attention uh, to one spot on the screen, while the full screen close-up allows us some freedom up and down. An opportunity for comparing aspect ratios is available with the most recent Criterion edition of, on the, of Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront, which presents the film in three ratios. Uh, I won't say which. Uh, it was filmed during a period when widescreen was just being introduced, not everywhere, and so they actually, uh, I, I won't go into this, but they actually filmed it with attention to all three possibilities. Uh, 1.66 to 1, 1.85 to 1, and 4 to 3. Um, it's, it's, it's illustrative. Uh, it seems to me this is why, uh, in a material way at least, uh, Rear Window by Hitchcock is more successful than Rope. Rope uh, wants to seems to me wants to focus at times and, and get in small in a way that it can't. But I, I don't feel very uh, sure about that. So far, so far, I've considered what I've been calling material aspects of the image. The remaining considerations I'll call formal. All these concern the sort of interior attention given to the image. 
Now, sometimes for some length of time, the act of seeing is merely represented as itself desirable. This was almost the only pleasure I took the first time I watched Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, and I doubt that the film intends too much more. The film critic Roger Ebert says, uh, Malick's vision of the land indeed is so sweeping that an ordinary human-scale story in the foreground would be a distraction. Uh, this is one of the most beautifully photographed films ever made, close quote. Uh, and again, I, I still can't get much more than that. Uh, but I like it. I like, it. I, I like watching it. Perhaps no film can escape entirely from this. Uh, but, but I, I first saw it uh, uh, on the, uh, in a theater, and I, uh, it, it gains, I should say. Perhaps no film can escape entirely from this, but some use it to particular effect. West Side Story begins with a magnificent view looking directly down upon Manhattan and taking us, without hurry, uh, to the block on the west side where the story begins. Uh, needless to say, such an interpretation of the musical's title is impossible on stage. A similar approach to the island opens uh, Kineto Shindo's The Naked Island. Uh, it's one of those films that's worth having a region-free player for. Again, such sight may of itself, without attention to a conscious judgment, produce some passion. In Michael Kakayana's Iphigenia, after Clytemnestra and Iphigenia set off with their entourage for the camp of Agamemnon's army, a long passage of the film alternately watches them traveling and Agamemnon waiting. At first, one merely enjoys the sight of the wedding party and their carts moving over the Greek countryside. Uh, this is counterpointed by Agamemnon's expectation. After a break in these views, while the wedding party rests for the night, we again take up watching. Uh, the continued alternation of views uh, without dialogue, and you, you do get a little anxious, uh, necessarily increases our sense of Agamemnon's agitation, which thereby becomes even more opposed to the joy of the party. Sometimes, in fact, quite often, a film leaves aside the view of the observer, or rather the narrator, and takes on the visual feel of one of the characters. One of the innumerable examples one could give is the moment in Anna Karenina where Vronsky and Anna first see each other. Uh, this, movement, this moment is critical to the novel's plot, and every production must make, uh, must make much of it. The Russian film by Alexander Zarki, uh, the only really good one in my opinion, uh, does this in a manner very faithful to the novel. Uh, the observer qua narrator sees them meet, and this is all the drama can do. But when we see, then we see Vronsky seeing her. We experience his act of seeing her. The novel can describe what Vronsky sees and his thoughts or feelings upon seeing her. They're not as exciting as you might expect, by the way. Uh, but the film can reproduce his experience of seeing her. And that one really does experience, uh, reproduce what Tolstoy is describing. Uh, in a drama, we can only uh, see the meet, perhaps hear a soliloquy. Uh, now, sometimes the sight is immediately a principle of our judgment about a film's action. Uh, note that I'm distinguishing this from the presentation of an act of sight as a principle of action on the part of some character in the plot. Uh, the latter I'll discuss in a, in a moment. Uh, inescapably, more often, the observer sees something which allows him to judge the action. Uh, most the most famous case must be the closing scene of Citizen Kane when we see Rosebud, uh, for which the anonymous hero of the film has been searching throughout in vain. I must say, when I first saw it, I, I had this was the judgment I made. Oh, that's why there was a Dick Van Dyke uh, episode in which the son was uh, explained why his name was Rosebud. I was wondering why the what a stupid, what a stupid story. Uh, <laughs> 
I leave aside here what sort of resolution uh, this is meant to bring to the observer in that, in that story. That's another question. Uh, more proper to the film, what I mean is what, more what it can do alone, is when it reproduces the character's visual field as the principle of some judgment or sizing up that he makes. Uh, in Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, this is used to particular effect when sitting around the dinner table and discussing a murder of a rich old widow in New York from which uh, town Uncle Charlie has recently arrived. The young lady of the house, his namesake Charlie, says pointedly, uh, they are human, uh, about such these widows. We see Uncle Charlie turn to the girl, then, uh, then from her point of view, we see him close up asking, are they? Uh, and the, then the shadow of the doubt becomes a real doubt. Often from the very beginning of a film, the visual field has been used to reproduce a character's imagination. I'm sorry, from the very beginning of film, okay? Buster Keaton does this in Our Hospitality. When the hero hears that he's inherited his father's house, and again, when he stands before the inherited shack, uh, we see the grand southern estate that he dreams he has inherited, right? Uh, likewise, Charlie Chaplin uses this technique famously in The Gold Rush when another starving character imagines him as a big chicken. Okay. I, I couldn't think of... Uh, it, it, that, that could become tiresome and, and more serious stuff, uh, but, but I know it happens in other things. Eh? Sometimes this is taken to the extreme of presenting dreams or even hallucinations. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari seems to present itself as a whole, or virtually as a whole, as the hero's hallucination. Perhaps Christopher Nolan's memento is, uh, is open to a similar interpretation. More common is presentation of a dream, hopefully uh, balancing the twin difficulties of synthesizing its image and of judging its reality. Uh, Kurosawa seems to aim at this. This, this, uh, the dream is the more common way of showing an imagination. Uh, Kurosawa seems to aim at this in the early segments of his later work, uh, Dreams, later in his life. Uh, here he wants us to get a sense of his own dreams as a child, so far as I can, uh, but perhaps the, the sections are too long and too coherent to give us the feeling of a dream proper. Uh, George Cooker's uh, comedy, The Marrying Kind, Aldo Ray, uh, better, uh, better than, uh, better than he acts. Uh, Aldo Ray stars in a delightful dream sequence. Uh, there are many later and better examples, but that's a very good, a good one to uh, see with that attempt to try to give you the difficulty of, uh, of uh, judging the reality and of synthesizing the images and balancing that. I've already mentioned Memento, and I suppose it's, it manifests parks along the, the uh, maybe following as well. I like following better than Memento, but I'm not sure I'm right. Uh, I suppose it's, it manifests parks along the, the power of representing acts of memory. I'm not as sure how good a film it is, but it has great power from this ability. The visual field is, pres is presented as something remembered with a certain judgment. Uh, we see that something happened. Perhaps we see it again. We see more of it or see more in it. Again, as Memento suggests, memory may be confused with imagination and may be associated with false judgments. Uh, of course, many films are presented in whole or in part as the act of someone remembering. Often this does not touch the representation except as a way into the story. Okay, it's sometimes just a gimmick to get you started. And you could, if they hadn't made it that way, you might not have noticed. <coughs> or you can just forget. It has, uh, often this does not, uh, okay. But sometimes, even when it is not used as intensely as in Memento, memory introduces depth into a film. 
In Citizen Kane, we're offered various memories of Kane, a newsreel reporting his death uh, and reviewing his public life, and then intimate accounts from people who knew him at various points in his life. While we're never led to think that any of these accounts have distorted the principal character, we sense that something essential to the man has been missed by everyone, and, or rather, the man himself missed something essential to life. This is highlighted by the hero reporter's assertion to Kane's second wife, you know, I kind of feel sorry for him. I'm not quoting exactly. Uh, you think I don't, she sobs. Uh, the sense is, of course, underscored by our discovery of, of Rosebud. That's, assuming you, you know that. I won't give it away otherwise. Again, in Rashomon, we're presented with various pretended memories, and of course, we discover that everyone is lying, at least a little. Uh, this adds a, depth, a, a different order of depth. As Kurosawa says, human beings are, quote, human beings are unable to be honest with themselves about themselves. They cannot talk about themselves without embellishing. This script portrays such human beings, the kind who cannot survive without lies to make them feel they're better people than they really are. It even shows the sinful need for flattering falsehood going beyond the grave. And if you haven't seen it, I uh, leave you with that uh, uh, little uh, carrot. Note that Rashomon and various films like it also suggests the power that someone's proposed memory have uh, upon us. I would say uh, more than that. That is to say, we don't have to actually see memory. Sometimes if people just propose memory, it, 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 that works sufficiently. I do not want to overemphasize here the role of representing acts of imagination and memory in films, as if that's all they do. Uh, they must remain techniques in telling a story, revealing character and purposes, showing us points of view. But the ability to represent such acts as they belong to particular characters is merely an aspect of film's general power to represent acts of sight. The observer, the narrator... Uh, those of the observer, the narrator, or of any of the characters. This power distinguishes it fundamentally from the drama, which has very little of such power. The novel, of course, can enter deep into the interior lives of characters, but they can be re reproduced for us only through words and to this extent through thought and rather close to thought. Uh, the relationship with thought gives the novel exceptional possibilities for clarity and determination. What the film loses in the determination of its images, it gains as a more immediate impact because of its critical tie to the immediate, sensible, albeit visual, experience. And that's all I've written.